From the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL, you are listening to Global Lab. The Greeks very kindly gave us democracy two and a half thousand years ago, and since then we've been trying to understand it, to refine it, and in some cases subvert it. Uh, this episode we'll hear from three researchers who are concerned with understanding voting, elections and other ways that we weigh up people's preferences and powers. Carl Collinan from Democratic Audit at the LSC will talk about why your head might be worth 170 times someone else's head. Uh, and Cecilia Lenata Briones will talk about the first attempt to count the heads, or at least the breadbaskets, of the Argentinian working class. But before we hear from them, we'll hear from Duncan Smith from CASA, uh, who's going to tell us how we can understand the British general election results using the power of something called percolation. Hi, my name is Duncan Smith. I'm a researcher here at CASA at UCL. I'm an urban geographer, so I'm interested in cities, the performance of cities, uh, how how environmentally friendly cities are, and variation between cities. So all sorts of research on cities and space. So despite not being a barista, you're very interested in something called percolation. So this kind of percolation is nothing to do with coffee and everything to do with regions. So um, we, uh, we're very interested in different ways of defining uh, space across a country across, and between cities. So we've used this method called percolation to try and divide up the regions of the United Kingdom yep. according to their spatial relationships. So this, this method called percolation, you take, we're using the road network as our basis for defining these regions. And you take the, the location of junctions across the UK, so very simple, just road data, and mm-hmm. then you group them according to how close they are in space. Okay, so you've got the, the, this, this, this road network, and how you gro- explain how you're grouping them, I didn't quite understand that bit. Sure, so you have a, a threshold distance, so you say all road junctions within... 500 metres, they're part of the same group. Okay. And you test out a whole different range of these different distances. So if you have a very short distance, for example, then the only clusters you're going to get is in a really high density area. So the centre of a city, so centre of inner Manchester, centre of inner London, for example. Yeah. But as you as those di- distances increase, then your regions expand. So you may, might end up with the northeast of England or Wales or the southwest, for example. So you, using this method, you end up with a hierarchy of regional definitions from very tightly defined cities all the way up to regions and then nations. So for, for this study, we were looking at Great Britain, so all of England, Wales and Scotland. So you, you, you're getting a sense of what the, the geography of the regions based on sort of travel time almost or how far people will, will move or... Yeah, so it's definitely about accessibility. The, the road network defines this relationships of travel time, but it also defines relationships of settlement as well. That the, You get more road junctions where there's a higher density of development. So you tend to get, um, both, you tend to get regions where you've got the city core, but also the, the suburbs and local settlements that have kind of merged into these corner bases. So you can start to unpick those little... Well, they say, for example, in London, they say it's a set of villages that have sort of merged together, don't they? Yeah, can you exactly. Start, can you start to see that with this technique? Yeah, exactly. So the the smaller measures, you'll get the villages, and then as you increase that, the villages will merge together into a bigger city region. So you're almost seeing like that historical evolution. That must be quite exciting. 
Yeah, well, so, I mean, some of the some of the definitions are really interesting. For example, uh, the the difference between really traditional cities, which are quite defined, like a university town or so on, and then the way that uh, the big industrial cities have grown up. Which, if you look at the West Midlands, so and Birmingham and so on, they, they it's more spread out, and there's lots of settlements that tend to come together only at longer distances. You you also get. Um, cities that we think of as quite distinct to all also merging together so liverpool and manchester for example mm. although they got really strong cultural identities and rivalry it with sometimes as this increases they merge into a single single city region i, I doubt any of our listeners from liverpool or manchester will thank us for saying that well um may, maybe maybe <laughs> not i mean the, these arguments are coming up in the in devolution discussions at the moment as well so it's, it's, it's very interesting so before we talk about devolution what um the the research that you did with this this technique was around voting wasn't it yeah so what did uh, what did you learn about voting using this 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 technique well so this technique gives us a range of different regional definitions so and we've applied these in different areas for example we've applied them to urban economic performance and to, to try and study the um, whether, for example, the southeast region, how it compares to other regions based on city size and other variables. For, for the voting study, we're interested in whether Britain was becoming more fractured. The, right. um, the, the share of the vote to the top, the two biggest parties, to Labour and Conservatives, has been steadily declining for the past 50 years. Right. It's, it's around about 65% now, and we're getting more votes for national parties, more votes for maybe single issue parties, more votes for independents, mm-hmm. more votes for new parties that emerge, Green Party, UKIP and so on. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to see if we can use regional definitions to try and maybe explain how the political geography is fracturing across the UK. So the question is, is it particular parts of the country that are voting for, well, the Scottish National Party would be an obvious one where that might yeah. be the case, but the Green Party or UKIP or... Uh, one of these these non-explicitly geographical parties. Yeah, exactly. So it does work very well for the nations, the the vote you get in Scotland and Wales, but we're wondering, can it also explain perhaps a different voting pattern in the southwest or coastal towns or uh, north versus south and so on? And did you see effects which... Which highlighted that? Well, um, we did. It's it's not maybe quite as strong as as we would hope, but we compared it to to a model based simply on socioeconomic data. So, say you had a model, you're trying to predict voting based on income, age, right. family structure, and so on. And our, our regional definitions did outperform that quite considerably. Okay, so the sort of the traditional models of. Um yeah, rich old men vote Tory and, and poor working class mums vote, vote Labour. You were saying this this spatial or geographical definition does better than that sort of simple... Yeah, it, it wouldn't outperform a professional pollsters model, right. although a lot of the professional pollsters <laughs> spectacularly failed, for it, but that's a whole different issue. Um, but it did better than a, a kind of quite simple socioeconomic model. So hmm. that is encouraging for more research in that area. So what, what do you think is the reason then? Is that because... Why would you expect that a particular region of the country might have a similarity in its voting behaviour? We'd expect that these regions would have shared cultural and socioeconomic characteristics that 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 these regional definitions would help to uncover, and would and it also may relate to nationalism, to um, Mm. to to a a different identity that, that. 
the um, so the regional definitions define an area where it's easier to communicate across this area where over well, a long period of history that these areas have been linked together so it's, but it's a physical kind of communication isn't it? obviously everybody can go on yeah. twitter or the guardian website or the bbc now but it's the there's physical communications where people yeah. can meet face to face for example or... exactly the physical communications but I think there's a lot of studies where the, the physical communications and uh, telecommunications tend to be linked or tend one encourages the other. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some rationale then for saying that if there is this fractured uh, geographical politics, mm-hmm. then the, the arguments for devolution, either of cities of Scotland, Wales, maybe the, you know maybe the Cornish want their own state, they probably probably yeah. do. Um, there is an argument that says that that would make cultural sense on some level. Well, um, the, the the main argument for devolution is definitely along the economic performance lines. It, it's the, um, that we've had this north-south divide, that it's, it's not something new, it's been there for centuries in the UK. That, um, I mean, but so, some historians put it all the way back to 1066. And so the argument for devolution is that, um, that it gives these, uh, gives uh, City regions and more more decisions to prioritize what what is important for them. So the, it's not uh, the situation may be different in different parts. It, it may be a transport problems may be the key uh, for some cities. It may be housing for others. It may be the regeneration of city centers for others, or it may be a balance of all of these. But the idea of devolution is to give um, the people who know best in these cities more more control to to prioritize what they need. Well, that seems relatively uncontroversial in some ways. You're right. When I when I word it that way, it doesn't seem controversial. <laughs> but um, there, there, there's there's lots of decisions. What powers should be given? Should should how how do you divide up where, where devolution should happen? Um, the UK has obviously got this. We've uh, given devolution to Scotland, to Wales, to Northern Ireland. How does that work with devolution to English city regions as well? Um, the there's one of the the biggest issues when you devolve powers that it, that is revenue generation. So ideally, a, a devolved administration has some control over taxes, and then it can spend that money in the areas it needs. But um, isn't one of the issues that London is the main tax revenue source well, of the whole well, of the UK? Ex- <laughs> well, exactly. So London already has significant devolved powers to the Greater London Authority, which has been in many ways very successful. Mm-hmm. And um, and you could use that as a model. So that model is is currently being transferred to Greater Manchester. There'll be elected mayor in 2017. Right. If we give more powers to city regions to hang on to their revenue, that might mean that London, which is already the richest and most successful by far of any UK city by mile, that might mean it stays the richest and most successful mm. and and stretches that even further than just now so it's it's a difficult balancing act i mean is there the is there a sort of rationale for then uh, there being a greater disbursement of funds as well as disbursement of power yeah and um, if if you take certain uh, aspects of funding you can see that there are big inequalities that you you might not expect at first so um, transport is a big issue especially in city growth um, we really haven't invested in public transport in northern cities. Mm. But if we looked at the last 10 or 20 years, where have the biggest projects, the real multi-million ones, happen? They, most of them would be in London. Mm. All the main parties had their proposals for how devolution was going to happen, mm. and the Conservatives have latched onto this northern powerhouse idea. 
it wasn't attached to a particular city at first because um, Manchester appear or Greater Manchester it seems to be furthest ahead in these proposals it seems to be becoming more attached to Manchester but I think the intentions more for a, a series of northern cities yeah. to grow and cooperate and I, that's an interesting model whether um, to what degree can a more polycentric growth work for the north and even the term the north is too vague as well we're really we're really talking about the midlands the northwest the northeast yorkshire and the humber and and so on all quite specific city regions each with their strengths and weaknesses but yeah. but potentially well connected if if we grow in the right way Duncan presents a rosy future for the Northern Powerhouse, but what if you live in Liverpool and your vote counts for a fraction of your neighbours? Thomas Oliver Evans caught up with Carl Cullinan from Democratic Audit at the LSE to find out how this can happen. Yes, we're, we're an independent think tank that's based in the Public Policy Group in the London School of Economics. Um, so it's 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 been around since the the early nineties, and uh, it's kind of it's uh, a group that was that was set up to kind of to evaluate British democracy and, and to, to kind of conduct research into British democracy and kind of also to promote general understanding of it. We're, we're very much focused on kind of engaging the general public. Um, so, so our focus is kind of on more short form pieces. Um, so we, so we, run a, we run a blog um, that has you know, a lot of content on it every, every day and every week. Um, and then also uh, the, uh, so we do ebooks and, and uh, events and we do podcasts sometimes. So the, the focus is on kind of engaging and promoting about UK democracy. Great. Um, so one of the things I'm interested in is, uh, is Democratic Dashboard. I think you were the project lead on this. Yeah. Uh, so this is something I was looking at before the election, lots of information on there. So just uh, tell us what Democratic Dashboard is then. So the, the kind of the raison d'etre of the project is that there's no one place that a voter can go to find out who represents them at all at all electoral levels, from local elections to general elections to Europe to devolved assembly. Um, so for the, for the general election, um, the idea was to to be the most comprehensive source uh, of kind of of local information um, before before the election to kind of uh, communicate and display almost anything a voter could want to know in advance of the election. So we had past election results in in your area both recent uh, general election results, but also kind of combined local and, and European elections, mm-hmm. so that it happened since 2010. The choices available to voters are very different in, 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 in different constituencies. So we were trying to kind of uh, inform people as much as possible um, about their constituency. So the focus was really the general public then, it was uh, about pre- presenting something in a, as accessible a way as possible. Yeah, well I suppose, yeah, so there, so there were kind of, there were two broad aims. Um, uh, one one was to was to uh, to make this information available in a kind of accessible way to as broad a group as possible, so the the, the general population. Um, the second aim was to was to compile all this information uh, into an open access database, um, because uh, the information that I gathered over over six months is, is spread over a lot of a lot of different websites and available in different formats and is often often quite inaccessible and difficult difficult to process. So. So we wanted to kind of combine all that, combine all that information, and make it freely available to to researchers or journalists. There must have been some big uh, data challenges there. Then I know from uh, having tried to use constituency level data myself, um, there's the whole Thanet South or South Thanet argument. There's all so many different names for the places. Uh, there must have been lots of challenges. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it was a it was a it was a huge job. Um, 
and that you've you've pointed out one of one of the you know it's it, it sounds like a simple thing but it does cause a lot of a lot of heartache that I I must have come across at least five to ten different naming conventions on, on how to on how to name constituencies so when you're trying to match databases together it's uh, it, it tends to be a pain yeah, if only people could decide where to put the comma it'd be <laughs> well, exactly. much easier yeah, yeah. and then gets even more complicated when you go back in time and constituency names have changed yeah um, and boundaries have changed so it's a uh, yeah it was it was it was a huge challenge so, so now the, the election is over, what's the, the future of a democratic dashboard then? Are we looking forward to 2020 or is that too far away to think about for the minute? Well, the, so the, the 2015 general election was only the, the first phase of the project and it was mm-hmm. very much focused on that election and focused on um, Westminster constituencies. Um, so the next phase of the project is to kind of, is to kind of fulfil hopefully the original aims, which is to um, build towards the, there's a set of elections next year um, where quite quite a few you know, quite a large proportion of the population will be covered by um, local elections, by devolved assembly elections in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Greater London Assembly. Mm-hmm. There'll be mayoral elections and there'll also be uh, police and crime commissioner elections. So quite a few people will be covered by these elections next year. So we're going to use that as the, as the target uh, uh, t- to build towards um, Presenting presenting this data to people at every at every level. So if you enter in your postcode, it'll tell you who your who the councillors are in your local ward. It'll tell you who your MP is. It'll tell you who your MEP is, and um, and devolved assembly rep- representatives, etc., etc. Um, so that's that's kind of uh, an added degree of of, of complexity for, for the for the site going forward. But it's a you know it's a big it's a it's a the elections next year are a nice goal to kind of aim for for that. Great. So it's more for political data fans to look forward to on that uh, front then. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the voting power index, which is something that features on the democratic dashboard, uh, which I think people will find quite interesting. So what is this all about then? Um, yes, yeah, so the voter power index was the, uh, you know, one of the things that got people most interested, I think, for of, of all the... When visitors came to the dashboard, the voter power index was got got the most feedback from people and really kind of provoked people into thinking about the election and about uh, democratic procedures. So the the voter power index measures um, how how much how much influence voters have in different constituencies on their on their outcome. Um, so technically, it measures the the probability um, that a voter could could cast a decisive vote uh, in in the in that election. In the constituency, or, or are we thinking about the whole election? Just in the in their in their specific constituency. Okay. So it so it varies widely, it varies hugely across constituencies. Um, so the the basic idea is that take for example, um, in the last election, your MP got in with you know was was thirty thirty percent ahead of the the second place candidate. Mm-hmm. There's almost no chance in the in the next election that that majority will be overturned. There's almost no chance that whether you turn up to vote or not. The result is is not going to change. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you live in a marginal constituency where you know the last MP won by only a, a percent or two, there's a really good chance that your vote could be a decisive one, and that smaller small groups of voters could really change the outcome. So you're in a very different position depending on what what constituency you arbitrarily fall into, and the voter power index kind of captures you know cap quite cap captures quite effectively the kind of the unfairness of that. 
that presumably there's also an effect as to the size of the constituency uh, that, that must affect people's voting power as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So there are three things that affect how much power um, you have in your constituency. Um, one is uh, is the the majority in the, in the last election, um, mm-hmm. the size of the majority that needs to be overturned. Um, two is the size of your constituency. Um, and three is the is 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 the kind of the historical record of of election results and how how likely it how likely they are for uh, for MPs to change at each election. So, so, do you have any examples to hand as to, to where your vote is particularly valuable and where your vote is particularly useless? Yeah, so so constituencies uh, like Arfon, uh, Swansea West, um, mm-hmm. the Wirral, um, all had all had voter powers where where they had up to three or four times the power of of an average voter. So three or four times more likely to change the result in that constituency voting there. Yes, compared to the the average average. voter in in, in the UK. So on on Merseyside alone, uh, one vote in Wirral South was worth 170 votes in Liverpool-Walton. That's quite a big difference, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So it it really highlights the disparities that are caused by the 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 first-past-the-post system and, and UK electoral geography. So this sounds like an important issue. I assume the parties know about this. So how is this affecting the way they're campaigning then? Yeah, so absolutely parties are very conscious of this and uh, the research shows that, that parties pour far much, far more money into marginal constituencies than they do into safe seats. And this is one of the reasons why it's such a, it has such a corrosive effect on democracy because um, in safe seats, uh, voters are practically ignored. Um, parties take them for granted, candidates take them for granted and the votes don't matter. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's a foregone, it's a foregone conclusion. Whereas parties pour three or four times the amount of money in terms of campaign money and attention into into marginal seats, and those mar- those marginal seats are concentrated in certain types of areas, um, particularly in the West Midlands and in the in the Northwest. And it, it just leads to a skewed electoral system where where small groups of, of voters have you know a lot of influence over the outcome, and they're they're you know treated in a different way to voters in other in other types of constituencies. So, so do you foresee any, any possibility of change then? Because there are a few parties that would unite behind this, obviously the Lib Dems, the Greens and UKIP, an unlikely alliance perhaps, but um, they would all prefer some more proportional system. But given that there was an unspe- unexpected uh, majority at the election, any, any hope for change, do you think? Um, not Certainly not in the short term. So there was, before the election, given that all the speculation seemed that it was going to be a hung parliament, and that would have been the second hung parliament in a row, um, under first past the post, and with increasing multi-party, the increasing multi-party nature of British politics, there would have been a real strong, strong case, I think, for ele- for electoral reform, because the only first past the post is unfair in many ways, but its only its main benefit is that it it's supposed to deliver strong government, mm-hmm. and if increasingly it wasn't capable of doing that, then there's almost no good reason to keep it. Um, unfortunately, that argument uh, has been has stalled somewhat because because of the the conservative majority, but the case the case for reform is still there. Um, the twenty fifteen general election was one of the most disproportional outcomes there's been uh, in British political history. So the, the the case is still there for reform, but the chances of reform in the short term are not there because the conservative government benefited hugely from it, and there's no incentive whatsoever for them to change. So if people want to look at Democratic Dashboard, uh, how should they do that? Um, Yeah, full results uh, for the 2015 election and comparisons with previous elections are all up on democraticdashboard.com.
So we heard earlier about uh, some more projects you've got on for next year, the elections next year. We look forward to those. Thank you very much for coming to see us, uh, Carl Cullinan. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. For our next guest, we're just going down the hall at the London School of Economics, but we're also travelling backwards in time to the 1920s, where Argentina, for the first time, is attempting to calculate its cost of living. Um, my name is Cecilia Lanatabriones, and I'm, I'm studying through the, using Argentina as a case study, the Argentine cost of living as a case study. I'm looking at the history of statistics and basically kind of looking at um, how statistics are shaped by particular contexts, historical context, economic context, social context. And um, yeah, they're a product of their own time. And um, basically, one of the main points um, that I want to make in my thesis is that, um, you know, these kind of particular statistical tools, they're not unique, but they're particular to a context. Um, even if you know if you can compare the Argentine cost of living in you know the beginning of the twentieth century um, with you know because it was really similar in similar times with the U.S. cost of living and the U.K. cost of living and the German cost of living and disease, um, each one responded to what was happening in each context, right? And you you may, you want to make a statistic that sticks. You want to measure the cost of living of the working class, for example. You want to you know expect the working class to be kind of reflected or to see itself reflected. What is, is specific about the case studies that you're looking at? What are the contexts that you're dealing with? So, well, basically, so the first Argentine cost of living that was published was um, um, not published officially, unlike other, uh, other indices, but released by um, a journal. Um, though the guy, Alejandro Unge, that produced it, he was part of the national statistical system. But um, for some reason, and I'm trying to look into that as well, um, he decided to publish that index in the Review of Argentine, the Review of Argentine Economics instead of just you know, releasing it through the National Statistical System, which he was director of. So it was like the beginning, the quasi-official index, to be then, he, he himself released it through the National Statistical System in 1924. So, so that's when it all becomes official. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But then um, the interesting thing is that it ceases to be published right after that. Um, okay. So there's kind of, and he goes back to, it's kind of like, it's a kind of, it's an up and down thing. So he publishes in 1924 and then there's no publication of this annual index until 1928 when it goes again through his journal. There's another publication through his journal that updates it. And then there's practically nothing until it, the new release in 1935, which is a completely different index with a completely different budget survey and very different characteristics. And they're like two different things. They're like not very related. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at the first half of the 20th century. There's quite a lot going on in the world <laughs> in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, how are these things impacting on the, the case studies that you're looking at? So basically, um, obviously, right, so you have um, two massive uh, wars going on and... Um, Put the context there. Yeah, a little bit. And um, so basically, as I mentioned before, so the, the context is important, right? And how each 
of these countries was involved in the war, right? Of course, you have the more developed countries that I mentioned, the US, the UK, Germany, um, completely, you know, directly affected by the war because they were part of the war, whilst Argentina was indirectly affected by it, mainly because, you know, we depended a lot on the UK at that time, right? And we used to um, export to the UK meat and wheat and all these kind of, you know, low value added exports that were, you know, the main kind of growth driver of the economy. And um, so when obviously, you know, when with the war, um, everything changes because, of course, Britain is not interested that much in, you know, maintaining a commercial relationship with us, but is interested obviously in other things. So with the war, there's a lot of, particularly the, the developer of the cost of living index, Alejandro Unge, he's particularly interested in demonstrating how um, Argentina could go a different way and could kind of reshape its economic structure. Um, you know, something much more industry focused to kind of um, lose the dependency it had. Um, the economy had, or the gr- the growth of the economy had on you know on these exports, okay. and the cost of living with together with other statistical um, indicators of foreign trade numbers, um, a very very basic kind of um, national income estimate. He he uses these estimates as tools to justify potential changes and how how Argentina will benefit from these um, structural changes in the economy. So this is very much, so everything's in a period of ferment, everything's up for grabs, there's the economy could potentially change and statistics are just part of this this argument. Well, yeah, I guess that, that, I mean, that was his argument, right? But it was not the ruling elite's argument. The ruling elite was just waiting for, basically, you know, in a nutshell and put really bluntly, bluntly, was just waiting for the the war to be over and everything to go back to the way it was, right? So the ruling elite, which is obviously tied to the kind of the landed oligarchy and um, interests that benefited from exporting beef and wheat, um, they they just wanted everything to go back to the way it was. So kind of... So it didn't stick at all? It wasn't just unpopular with the elites? Yeah, exactly, of course. And it wasn't... as um, the, co- the working class didn't kind of see itself reflected okay. in it and it didn't accept, accept it as such um, either at the very beginning. Um, so, yeah, it took a while for it to stick. And, the, I mean, for these particular um, circumstances, it doesn't mean that in the US and the UK and Germany it stuck mm-hmm. quite um, automatically either, but, you know, it these things take a while to stick in general, right? But... In Argentina, it happened for these particular causes, basically, right? Okay. I just don't want to get the idea that just they don't stick. Yeah. They didn't stick and the others did. It's just kind of like the d- different motives, right? Different reasons. And do you see, um, on that on that subject, do you see the, the index changing dramatically, you know, in what they're measuring, how they're measuring it, etc., between the, the two major time periods that you're looking at, the later, you know, the 1930s and so on? Uh, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, um, there are a lot of changes. Basically, one of, I mean, one of the big, big changes is that the nineteen thirties index. Um, it's part of like a bigger program to kind of get to know the working class, right? So, even if 
so industrialization was slowly kicking off mm-hmm. in Argentina, despite not being kind of like a state policy, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so there was, a, you know, through the 1920s, in the late 1910s, 1920s, so the, the working class was slowly kind of growing. And in, in the 1930s, from the state, there was this kind of implicit policy. And I guess it also has to do with, you know, the Great Depression and kind of other things that are going on everywhere else in the world. That um, So the working class kind of, you know, is, is becoming a political and economic actor, right? And um, in Argentina as well as in other parts. So we need to kind of sort of understand it. And the cost of living was part of, let's try to understand the... the working class. So there was much more interaction with the working class, you know, to develop the index and there was, you know, proper surveys and lives and budget surveys and an important difference is that the kind of the main trade union at that time, like a centralized trade union, was actually kind of, at least at the very beginning, supporting the index and it was kind of okay yes we need to know what's the cost of living we need to kind of have an instrument to adjust wages to so we will support this government initiative Hmm. and we'll endorse it and at least at the beginning which is something that did not happen earlier on in the 19 late 1910s 1920 and just to talk a bit more about you and and your (laughs) research because you if i'm right your your research you look at certain things about the working class, what they were, how much their various goods were costing, is is that right? And the baskets that they were buying? Yeah, like. so I mean, with the information that's available, because there's not um, a lot, the only information that I have um, are the actual kind of official publications. Right. Official as in, I mean, as in actually published, they might be official as in public, like, you know, government publications or private publications. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just looking at those publications and the data, so I'm constructing the methodology because it's really hard to understand how these indices were developed just by reading the, the one piece, like the main publication, the 1918 or the 1924 or the 1935. You need to do a bit of digging and kind of make up the methodology as you go along and kind of putting pieces together. So that's kind of a job in itself. So I'm doing that on, on one hand. And how do you manage that if you can't get inside the heads of the people who were, were writing it? Well, I guess that you also pulled together other sources, right? Um, apart from secondary literature that talks about, you know, the, the, these two kind of main statisticians, Alejandro Bunge in the 1920s and um, Jose Figueroa in the 1930s, um, you look at other publications that they did kind of more, let's say, academic um, to see if they discuss it there. Right. Um, you try to look at um, other different, kind of not methodological, but kind of more contextual stuff that they published, if they have published, because well, Bunke published quite a lot, but Fiorella was much more kind of confined. But then other things you kind of try to cross-reference with archival work, mm-hmm. for example, um, the International Labour Organization was quite an actor, as you would expect, in kind of developing um, methodology for these kind of more labour statistics, like lab- yeah, labour statistics. And um, so basically I went to the ILO archives and um, tried to see what was the relationship, if they had any, 
between these statisticians and kind of, you know, let that be ILO statisticians or ILO, the ILO in general. And because that's also, and try to see, you know, if they explain what they're doing through, you know, letters and stuff like that to all these organizations. So these are. Do you get these personal communications as well, or is it? Yeah, yeah, you have kind of official slash um, personal. Um, the ILO in the 1930s in Latin America kind of had a correspondence mm. that kind of reported to the ILO director on the particularities of of each country they were based in. So these guys were in touch with kind of yeah different, you know, so. The 1935 index was released through the National Labor Department, right? So he was in touch with the national. The correspondent was in touch with the National Labor Department, and he kind of sent official National Labor Department publications to the ILO and met statisticians as well. So you know, it's the correspondent talking to the ILO director. Sometimes that kind of gives you gives you hints as to kind of the bigger picture of of what the statisticians try to do. It's like putting a puzzle yeah, together. Yeah, <laughs> massive source jigsaw. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, so because what I find interesting about that is you know, we think of counting heads and we think of the people who are being counted, but you're really looking at the people who are doing the counting. Is it the case, you, you mentioned two statisticians, is it the case that the, the ideas and the arguments and the worldviews of quite small numbers of individuals really can shape how a country develops? And how a country sees itself developing, or is <laughs> well, like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, if I don't want to sound too deterministic mm. and say yes, uh, but it, they definitely have. Um, I don't know if the word is power, but they they definitely influence, and they have a big influence um, because I mean. You have to. I mean, of course, it's not statisticians working on their own. They're generally, you know bigger or smaller teams, right? Um, like you would have today, I'm sure. Um, but it's like their ideas, mainly, at that time at least, put on paper or put on an index, right? So they do shape, to some extent, what's being counted. And that that's why you also need to look. You don't know, just need to look at the number and the final number. You need to know how the number was developed and you know who are these guys and what these guys think. think. Because the way you know the way they think and the way they see things shapes the statistics. You know, I mean, the statistics are not neutral. They're not just kind of oh yeah, there's a methodology and we'll apply it. There's so much going on behind that, and that's what I'm trying to look at. And that's that's what I, what I personally find interesting. And I think what really does need to be looked at as well, right? How these people defined the cost of living and why do they look at you know. A particular basket, and why do they, you know, base the cost of living on a particular kind of, you know, family, and not on another family, and why they use this data, this price, and not that price, and that that's very important to look at because otherwise we just kind of look at the number, and the number could be anything. Thank you again for listening to Global Lab. That was Global Lab Counting Heads. Uh, our guests were uh, Cecilia Lanata Briones. Uh, we had uh, Carl Cullinan and Duncan Smith. Uh, and the contributors to the show this episode were Ollie Marsh, 
Thomas Oleron Evans and myself Martin Zoltzorsbrook uh, if you'd like to find out more about the show or just say hello we're all on Twitter Ollie Marsh is at Sideways Science Thomas Oleron Evans is at Mathistopheles and I am Sociable Physics and we will be back next month with a brand new episode